We are continuing on in our series, The Greatest Commission. And uh, as we do so today, I want to remind you, last week we talked about where the Greatest Commission begins. It's in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 28. And in that passage, you'll remember that Jesus establishes, first of all, his claim to authority. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. And when we see the word therefore, we always look to see what it's therefore. Okay. Um, Just one of the basics of kind of Bible study and understanding. So because Jesus has authority, he says, therefore, since I I have all the authority, I'm charging you, and now I'm placing my authority and my name on you to go and carry out this particular mission. All right, that being said, today we're going to be discussing what that mission is. I've entitled this, uh, this message today, Mandatory Mission, or A Mandatory Mission. And the mission is right after what he says about authority. Let's take a look at the passage, Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20. And let me ask you, before we do that, how many of you have written this down and put it on a mirror or your refrigerator? How many of you have started the process of memorizing these three verses? Show of hands. Oh, for shame. <laughs> so when I said this last week, that wasn't a joke. I really expect you to memorize three verses of Scripture. Three verses of Scripture. Can you do it? Yeah, if you say no by the end of today, I will make you feel miserable about it. I promise. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Pause, just take your pen or pencil, writing implement, underline, make disciples. This is the greatest commission boiled down to what is in Greek a single word. Make disciples. This is it. This is the mission. This is the commission that God gives us. This is what he gives us authority to do. This is what he says you have to do because I am the ultimate authority. Make disciples. Let's finish reading. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. All scripture is God-breathed. Would you agree? Amen. The scripture says that of itself, but some passages are more weighty than others. There's so much substance in this passage. If you were to just rank all of scripture in terms of its import for the individual life, this would probably be at the top, if definitely the top three, but probably the top scripture. Um, Famous Bible commentator and minister James Burton Kaufman said this about it. Here's what he says. The Great Commission, as the saints of all ages have consented to call it, constitutes the marching orders of his church for a day and to all eternity. It is the whole galaxy studded with many of the biggest stars in the firmament of Christian doctrine. It may well be doubted if many passages of similar length are more freighted with divine truth than are these words of the commission. They are exactly what one should have expected, only far more from the lips of a supernatural divine Savior on the point of departure to the eternal world of the Spirit in uttering one last comprehensive command to his disciples for all generations to come. Let's pray. Father, as we begin to dig in and think again about your great commission today, Lord, I pray that you would set this as a yoke upon us, that this would become our burden in a sense, that this would become our mission in our work, and we would see it as such as we move forward with life. 
Father, I pray your blessing on the hearts and minds here. Lord, we want to open up to your Holy Spirit and hear from you today. So help us do the hard work of listening, the difficult work of understanding. Help us to to, uh, open our minds and our hearts to you, Master. We pray this in your most precious name. Amen. So our mandatory mission is discipleship. And everyone has all heard that term, discipleship, before, right? Right. Yes? Okay. Um, Has anyone ever read the poem Jabberwocky by Lewis Carroll? You ever read that? Probably? Maybe? I love the way this this poem starts. Here, listen carefully, because this is important. "'Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe." What is the correct response? What? Now, it sounds almost like it's right, right? The slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. You listen to it, and it sounds like, okay, I should understand what this means, but then you stop and you go, wait a minute, what do those words mean? You start looking at individual words, and you realize they're nonsense words. They don't mean anything, but they sound kind of poetic, and they almost sound right. Much to our despair within the church, this is how we approach the Scripture sometimes. We start digging into the Word, and we hear a word that we've heard a hundred times in the Scriptures, and we think, oh, I should know what that means. But then you stop, and if you're careful, and you look at the Word, you go, wait, wait, what, what exactly does that mean? And it's not that it's a nonsense word, it's just that most of us kind of treat them that way. They become vague Christian jargon to us. Such is the word disciple. Today I want us to leave with a much more clear understanding of what the word disciple means. So, Jesus, when he's saying these words, who's he talking to? His disciples. Okay, so Jesus is speaking to disciples and he tells them to make disciples. It's understood that if you're you're taking on the charge to make disciples, you are already a disciple. That being said, let's ask the question, what is a disciple? What is a disciple? First of all, a disciple is a committed learner, a committed learner. It's literally what the term means. If you were to translate the term, Matheoteo means learner. You're a learner. Now, the Jewish notion of learners may be a bit different than ours. When I say learner, you probably think of like a student sitting in a classroom, right? And they're there and they're listening, they're hearing what the teacher's saying, and maybe they're taking notes and they're the most burning question on their minds is, is this going to be on the test, right? Because that's the approach of a learner in our culture. What is the minimum I have to do and still get, make the grade, right? This is not what was meant by a learner in Jesus' day. When we hear the word learner or disciple in Jesus' day, it meant something entirely different. Here's what it meant. As a learner, as a devotee of the rabbi, okay, you had a rabbi and then you had his students. They were known as his yeshiva, his yeshiva. That's the students of the rabbi. The yeshiva would come to the rabbi and they had trained their whole lives probably in understanding of the scriptures and they would basically say this to the rabbi at the outset. I am resigning all that I have or knew. I'm setting everything I believe or understand of my own. I'm setting it aside. My goal right now is to just take in what you know, what you understand. That is going to become mine. I will become like you, my rabbi. And so all the preconceptions they they bring to the table, all the ideas they think they have, all the understanding they have, they say, no, it doesn't matter. I'm thinking like you. I will function like you. I'm taking all of your mind in. I am destined to become as you are. It was understood that this was the relationship between the disciple and the rabbi. 
I like bad movies. And by bad movies, I mean stupid movies. I like movies where the acting is terrible, where the plot is just dumb and sounds like it's been written by a bunch of fifth graders. Uh, um, I, like, I like terrible acting where people trip over their lines and say lines that don't make sense. Um, my favorite movies are the monster movies where a monster comes on scene and you can like see the zipper on the costume and they're like tripping over things as they're coming in. That is why my favorite show of all time is a show by the name of Mystery Science Theater 3000. It's my absolute favorite. There is, for me, no entertainment greater than this show. Now, if, you've, if you're not familiar with the show, uh, it's a group of comedians who make fun of bad movies. They just sit and make fun of bad movies as they watch them. I love it. To such a degree that at both universities I was in, I started Mystery Science Theater fan clubs. Uh, and we would get together and we would actually watch these movies and make fun of them. Do you remember when the term geek meant something bad or nerd? Uh, for many of us growing up, that was a way to make fun of somebody. Not so much now, is it? Geek or nerd is somebody who has a particular penchant for something. They love something a lot. I loved Mystery Science Theater so much that in the early 2000s, there was this emergence of the thing called the internet. Maybe you've heard of it. <laughs> and on the internet, I thought, hey, I, Mystery Science Theater's been canceled since 1999. I wonder if anybody still has access to Mystery Science Theater. I wonder what I can find on the internet. And so he went on the World Wide Web, and I typed in Mystery Science Theater 3000, and I found some guy who was selling every DVD of bootleg copies of Mystery Science Theater that had ever been made. You guys familiar with the scripture passage, The Pearl of Great Price? Here is a thing so valuable that I would sell all I own just to own it. It became that to me. And so uh, without asking my wife, I spent hundreds of dollars that we did not have purchasing every Mystery Science Theater that was ever made. I came home and told her of my great joy. She was a little less emphatic about it, um, but still forgiving and still loved me because she knows my weakness for that. Now, I say all that for this reason. What do you geek out about? What are you a nerd concerning? That, by the way, is Gamera, friend of children. He is a saber-toothed space turtle, just so you know. What do you geek out about? What are you into? I have friends who are this way about cooking or baking, uh, friends who are this way about tabletop games or video games, about wood carving, trains, crocheting, quilting, building furniture, cars, history, maybe some branch of science or the arts, or playing an instrument, or just a lover of music. What are the things that you geek out over, the things you absolutely love? Think about those things, like how excited you get about those things. You were meant to be that way about Jesus Christ. The Lord our God made us to love and just desire to take in more of him and more of him, to learn and take it in. He made us to chase him with that same passion. Amen? Now that being said, Jesus wants us to become nerds of a sort. Learners, people who take in, who drink in his person. A friend of mine in ministry was talking about something that made me even think more about this. I don't know if you've ever been to a convention of nerds who all focus on a particular thing. Uh, but it's, it's weird, people get all loopy and excited and people who have, uh, demographically, they, they're nothing like each other, but like they're best buddies when they're there. Have you seen that? Something happens when people are so impassioned about a particular thing that they share that kind of community 
and it's almost instantaneous. A friend of mine was saying uh, he walked into his church and he saw uh, this guy who had a shaved head and he had tattoos all over his head. And this guy was a former crack addict and uh, he was sitting next to soccer moms. And they're just buddies, you know, because they all love the Lord and they're all serving the Lord together. And there's something that happens when we have that shared learning passion of Jesus, that when we get together, if we come into this place saying, Lord, I want to know you more, there is a unity that defies all reasoning. You were meant to be more than a learner of Jesus, though. You were also meant to be a follower. Everyone say follower. So we are learners and we are followers. Um, there's a difference between a learner and a follower. If, if you're romantically invested in somebody, you're interested in someone, I'll ask the teenagers this. You guys can help me with this. If you know everything about someone, are you necessarily that person's boyfriend or girlfriend? What else might you be? A stalker, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. All right, so the idea, it, it's not just information that we're taking in. It's more than information. We, we don't just know about someone. We need to know someone, Amen. And this is, the, this is how Jesus portrays himself to us. We must know him, understand him, and know him. So uh, I'm going to say this. Jesus never asked anyone to invite him into their hearts. Uh, that's the whole idea of Christians inviting Jesus into their hearts is based on Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus is describing this instance where he says, I'm standing at the door knocking of your heart, and I want you to let me in. But people have made that into a salvation ritual. That's, that's not something that Jesus actually set forth. Jesus never called us to walk down an aisle. He never called us to come to an altar. In fact, for hundreds of years, the church has had nothing resembling an altar in front of the church. That was actually a pagan practice. He never called people to pray a sinner's prayer that they might be saved. That was a creation of the church. You know what he did all the time? He said, follow me. Follow me. Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Matthew 9, 9. And Jesus went from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. He said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Matthew 19, 21. Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. John 1, 43. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now we've all heard this idea within the church. I'm a follower of Jesus. But what does that mean? Again, it's one of these words that kind of can become vague. For Jesus' first century followers, followers, it meant something very specific. Here's what it meant. Get up and come. Let's go. Let's walk. And so they walked together. They walked from place to place. They ate together. They, they sat in the rain together. They slept outside in the same places. They bathed in the same places. They mourned the same things. They laughed about the same things. They did all of their lives together. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But wait, you might be saying, there's a problem. I mean, how do I do that? They clearly got to walk with Jesus. How does that work for me? Have you ever noticed that we become the people we spend time with? When we were around somebody, we began to take on their mannerisms. Uh, Todd Jefferson was a, is a friend of mine, and we used to hang out together all the time. We were college roommates. We worked in the same church for a, a good long time together. Our wives would occasionally call the church, and uh, you know, I'd answer, and Emily, his wife, would be like, so here's what's going on, and she would start talking to me, and I'd, I'd just be like, yep, uh-huh. And they, they mistook us for one another all the time because our voices started to sound similar. 
I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but sometimes you'll meet a member of a family. And as you begin talking to them, it's, it becomes very clear very quickly. Oh, man, look at the mannerisms. Listen to the way they're laughing. Look at, look at the way they gesture. This is just like their dad. This is just like their mom. Have you noticed that that happens? And it's not like the family got together one day and went, okay, guys, listen up. Let's decide what our things are going to be. <laughs> right? It just happens organically. It emerges from the context of people being close to one another. When I first started uh, teaching, I was at Christ Church at Mason, and they'd invited me to start teaching teenagers. And as I was teaching, I noticed I was doing something weird periodically. I'd, I'd be gesturing to the, the whiteboard or the chalkboard, and I'd be doing this with my finger. Can you see what I'm doing? Now, if, if, you, if you can't see what I'm doing, I've got my finger slightly crooked at an angle. Now, my index finger works just fine. I could point like this. Do you know why I was doing this? I had sat with my dad for so many years. He's got his finger chopped off and melted in an angle there. I sat under the tutelage of my dad for so many years that this became natural for me as I gestured. I didn't think about what I was doing. It just happened. It is the same way as we spend time with Jesus Christ. We begin to take on his attributes, becoming more like him. And you've seen this in the church, right? I mean, you, you know Christians who you interact with, and as they speak to you, you're like, oh, that sounds like the Lord talking. As you see their wisdom or you see the grace with which they approach other people, you see them loving the unlovely, you see they, the way they interact with children, and you're like, this person is Jesus. I mean, there's, a, there's Jesus in this person. And hopefully people have thought that way about you, right? This is not by accident. We become the people we interact with. Look at Matthew chapter 28 again, 18 through 20. Look at verse 20. We're going to deal with this specifically in weeks to come, but we need to point it out right now. If you're saying, I can't, how do I walk with Jesus? I can't physically be with him. Look at this, look at verse 20. Jesus says to us, and this is a promise of scripture, lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. He is with us here and now. More than that, we are not just his learners, we're not just his followers, but we are the living embodiment of Jesus Christ. I believe it's the case that people should look at us and be like, you're the spitting image of Jesus. But beyond that, there's something supernatural that happens when the people of God take on the person of Christ as disciples. We're more than his likeness. In some profound way, he is living in and through us. There are uh, three descriptions of the church that are cycled through over and over again in the New Testament. They all begin with the letter B, so they're easy to remember. The body, the bride, and the building. Body, bride, building. When we read that we are the body of Christ, what does that mean? He is the head, we are the body. He is literally telling us, look, though I am in the heavenly places, though I have ascended on high and am awaiting to come back, though that is the case, I am still the head and you are my hands. You are my feet. You are doing my work here in this place. So as disciples of Jesus Christ come together, we are, in a sense, Jesus still working among the nations, still reaching out to the lost, still shepherding. There was a time in Christian history where Christians were ridiculed and made fun of. I know that might be hard for you to imagine. That's pretty much been all of history from the very beginning. But you know where it started? It's a place called Antioch. Antioch was a, uh, a Gentile region that was north of Jerusalem. It was in Asia Minor. And Paul and Barnabas were doing ministry in Antioch. And the church was exploding. 
People were passionate about their faith. And the Christians were so profoundly changing the culture that the culture began to nickname them. They weren't the disciples. They weren't the way. That was the original name of the church. They started calling them Christians to make fun of them. See, Christian means little Christ. You bunch of little Christ. And it was meant to ridicule the church. You bunch of little Christ. That's all you guys talk about. That's all you think about. Well, the church heard this term, Christian, and they went, that's what we are. We're a bunch of little Christ. That's exactly right. And so the church embraced what was meant to be ridicule, and we became Christians, little Christ, little embodiments of Christ going throughout the nations. That's in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, by the way, if you're looking for it. Uh, before, in order to really get a full comprehensive understanding of what a disciple was, I've actually got to introduce you to some weird first century experience. Um, this first came to me when I was at uh, Miami University. I was, I was uh, studying Greek in a non-Christian classroom. We were studying ancient texts that had nothing to do with Christianity, so we would read and translate like Herodotus and um, um, you know, the Iliad, the Odyssey, some of Homer's material, things like that. In the midst of that, my professor was saying to us, he said, now there used to be these guys named Homeric rhetoricians. Homeric rhetoricians. Uh, it's, it's, you guys remember Homer, right? The Iliad, the Odyssey? You probably had to read it in like high school. A Homeric rhetorician was a guy who used to travel around. This was one of the greatest forms of entertainment in ancient Greece and throughout really the whole Mediterranean world. The guy would travel around and he'd go to a town and he'd start taking up a collection. And when it reached critical mass where he got enough money, He'd have his musicians sit down, and they would build a huge bonfire, and the whole town would turn out. And so you'd have this enormous crowd of people. And then he would begin to pace around the bonfire, and he would pace in what we call dactylic hexameter. That was the meter. That was, he was pacing at a certain step, because that's the meter that the Iliad and the Odyssey were written in. And then he would begin to recite. And from memory, he would do the whole of the Iliad, and usually the whole of the Odyssey, too. Sometimes this would take multiple days. Now, I remember hearing this in class and going, no way! There is no way somebody could memorize that much material. I've, I've learned since then, it's more than 100,000 words memorized. Verbatim. And I thought, there's no, there's no human way this could happen. I was mistaken. In the first century existed something called oral tradition. It still goes on in some cultures around the world right now. The written word does not matter as much as the memorized word. And in Jesus' day and age, it was expected, listen, expected, that if you were eight years old, a boy and a Jew who had trained in the synagogue, you were expected to know the Torah by the time you were eight years old. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorized. Eight years old. If anybody's having fits about three verses of Scripture... Eight years old. By the time these kids were 13 years old, they usually had the whole of the Old Testament memorized. Genesis through Malachi, all of that memorized. And those were the kids, by the way, who were probably going to go on to become disciples of famous rabbis. Because they knew it. They knew it. Now, why is this important? Throughout the whole of the early church period, you remember the Gospels are not yet written down. As we have the first decades after Jesus' life, the Gospels are not yet written down. Open your Bibles, by the way, to uh, 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at verse 15 here in just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
Dr. Craig Evans, who is an expert on New Testament theology, said this um, of the role of a disciple during Jesus' day. He said, the role of a disciple is that of being a living tape recorder. Now, a tape recorder (laughs) is a device that was used to record voices. I'm sorry. That's, That's dating even the quote, right? Tape recorder. In other words, you're to take in this information. You're just to drink it in. And this is the way disciples worked in Jesus' day. They drunk in the teachings of the master. They memorized them. They knew them verbatim. It was acceptable in Jesus' day for a disciple to write notes about what his rabbi was saying, but you were not allowed to share those notes with any other disciple. Do you know why? You might corrupt their view of the master. So you were to memorize, you were to understand on your own. Until the master was dead, you were not allowed to share notes about what the master said. Make sense? Now, again, in our mindset, we're like, well, then how do they keep accuracy? If I were to quote Monty Python and the Holy Grail up here right now, and I were to start quoting it, some of you in this auditorium could probably correct me if I did the wrong thing, couldn't you? And you wouldn't let me get away with it. You'd be like, no, no, that's not how that scene goes. Because you have significant portions of it memorized. In Jesus' day and age, he didn't just have the 12. He had hundreds of disciples who were following him around, memorizing every single thing he said. Does that make sense? And they held one another to account of it. When you see in the New Testament, when you see them devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's what that means. What the apostles were saying was the gospel message. Have you noticed Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Have you noticed those gospels bear striking resemblances to one another? We call them the synoptic gospels. Some of the, the passages are the same passage verbatim. Literally because they had all memorized it. Everybody in the New Testament church had this stuff memorized. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 8, we see something interesting. Paul is writing this just a few years after Jesus has ascended. And so the church is new. The church is fairly early on in its existence. The Gospels have not yet been written down. They are being passed orally. That said, Paul does something interesting here. You might not have known this, but in this text, Paul actually goes to an oral tradition. He references a, basically a song that would have been used to teach people about the gospel of Jesus. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. Paul talks to the church of Corinth. He says this, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I pre- preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And from, from this point forward, we've got the that. This is like sing song. Your, your Bible might actually indent this sometimes. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom still remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to the apostles, and then last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Paul is giving them what is in essence a song, a memorized way that people understood what was happening in the New Testament. So what's the, deal? what's the big deal here? Why are we bothering talking about this oral tradition? Here's why. You were expected to be a learner on such a level, to have taken in Jesus' words on such a level that you are perceived by everyone around you as an expert on this man. You are known to be. Here's, here's the way it worked with a rabbi and his disciples, and you've got to understand this. This is important. 
when the rabbi died, the expectation was the disciples, even though the rabbi is gone, the disciples could get together and they know the rabbi so well that as they talked about what the rabbi would say, they could determine what the rabbi thought about anything that was on the table, even if the rabbi had never spoken to it, because they were collectively the living embodiment of the rabbi. This is what you and I are to be for Jesus, the living embodiment of our rabbi. We are to be Christ here and now. Our Lord died, but our Lord rose again, and then our Lord ascended into the sky. But before he did, he said this, go, make disciples. What I have made you into, go, make other people into. This is our one thing. Now, have you heard the phrase, uh, you had one job? Anybody ever seen the memes? You had one job memes? Oh, it's great. If you just go into a search engine and type in, you had one job, and then just look at what happens. Here's, here's the idea. Basically, somebody had one responsibility, and they completely botched it up. And so you take a picture, and you show how they messed things up, and then you just type in, you know, you had one job. Church, we had one job. One directive, one thing we are supposed to be about. It is our one thing. Discipleship is our one job. But wait, Ben, I'm looking at the text here, and I, I see that there are other things we're supposed to be doing. It says make disciples, but then it also says baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, it says that we're supposed to be going to all nations. It says teaching them to obey all I've commanded you. Yes, the Greek helps us out a little bit here, though. You see, in the original... Uh, scriptures in the original Greek, as this was originally written down, there is one verb, one primary verb in this text. Guess what it is? Make disciples. What is the one primary verb? All the rest of the, the verbs that are used here are, are called verb participles. They are meant to augment the one verb. All right, so make disciples. How do you make disciples? You make disciples by going out to them. How do you make disciples? You make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. How do you make disciples? You make disciples by teaching them to obey all I've commanded. Every other verb that is here augments the one verb, make disciples. It is our one thing. So what's the implication? Well, these are our marching orders. This is what the absolute authority said to us. He said to do this. Remember, Jesus said, I'm giving you a task. You, can't, you cannot ignore it. You cannot set it aside. You cannot treat it with impunity. Heaven and earth are mine. You are mine. Therefore, do this. We can't set it aside. So let me ask you this. Is this your one thing? Let's look into the mirror of the word for just a second. Reflect on yourself here. If I were to, to bring you up in front of everyone here in this room, and we were to ask the crowd in this auditorium, tell me, what is this person's one thing? Would they say, Make disciples. If I were to do that in your neighborhood, and I were to trot you around your neighborhood and you're, talk to your neighbors, what's this person's one thing? Would they say make disciples? Or at your place of business, what is their one thing? What is most important to them? Making disciples. Pop quiz. I'm going to name an organization. You tell me what it's known for. Ford. Cars. Crest. Toothpaste. Starbucks. Coffee. Coca-Cola. Soda. Rolex. Watches. Microsoft. Here we go. Christians. 
yeah, honestly. Now, and, it's, and not, not at all poorly said. When it comes down to it, if I were to just take the bulk of, even if, we, if our church were to look outside and go, tell me, what is the church about right now? Would we say make disciples? Or would we say it is just a, a scattering of all sorts of different ideas and purposes and functions? Isn't that how it looks? Being disciples who are making disciples is our one thing. It is our mandatory mission. Now that we know what's so, this is the truth, let's address the so what. We're to make disciples, so what? What is the impact on us as believers? Two things I want to draw your attention to. Number one is focus. Once we recognize that making disciples is our one thing, it should give us focus. Stephen Covey, the author of uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, says this, and it's a great quote, quote, uh, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. When it comes to the church, what is the main thing? Jesus has said as much. That being the case, we need to know not just what making disciples is, which, by the way, we're going to talk about for the next several weeks, but we're, we also need to know what making disciples is not. What I'm about to say to you next, you might find a little bit offensive, might rub you the wrong way. So please listen with charity. The church has focused on a lot of things throughout the years that do not involve making disciples. And it has castrated the power of Jesus Christ here on this earth. Because we took what he said and we set it aside and we began to do other things. Lest I remain vague, let me just go ahead and slaughter some sacred cows for you. Sometimes the church makes its business all about knowledge. I'm going to step on my own toes to start with. Okay, Knowledge. I love knowing things. I just said to you, we're to be learners of Jesus. But we've all had that church experience where we show up and we just take in more and more and more information and we never do anything with it. All we do is get more and more arrogant and go, those people out there are stupid if only they knew what we knew. Knowledge is not an end of, of itself. It is not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is what? I had a professor who describes it this way. He says, we are to be gravy boats for God. That probably requires some explanation. What is a gravy boat for? Holds gravy. You put gravy in it. And why do you put gravy in a gravy boat? Ah, to put gravy on something else. So it is being poured into, but the idea of it being poured into is that it will bestow what has been poured into it. That is us. We are gravy boats for God. We're meant to take in knowledge and understanding of the Lord, but we're not meant to be the end of it. We are to take it to carry it on. How many of us leave a sermon Sunday after Sunday and never have a single conversation about what we talked about? How many of us spend time in the Word day by day and we don't talk about what it is we're taking in? Brothers and sisters, it should not be so. Knowledge is not the one thing. Service is not the one thing. God has called us to serve, particularly God has called us to serve within the body of believers. We're to take care of one another's sincere needs. That's important in the church. But I've been part of churches that did service projects and things like, you know, we gathered this particular thing to give to somebody or, um, you know, we, we went and painted public schools or we handed out hamburgers and hot dogs or handed out drinks or we went and fixed somebody's house. And if you stop and you look back, sometimes you're looking at things going, why do we do this? No one, no one had a life change. 
No one, no one came to know Christ. No one developed as a disciple. Why did we spend so much time and energy on this? Is service good? Yes. Is it the one thing? It has to be subordinate to the one thing. It must be set up in terms of how does this contribute toward making disciples. What about social justice? The church and the teachings of Jesus Christ have radically altered human civilization. Slavery was ended as a movement of the church. The abolitionist movement was first and foremost a Christian movement meant to end slavery. The church gave and redeemed the value of children. Children were left to their own devices through most of human history, and orphans were orphans, and they were kicked around until they died on the street usually. Churches came along and went, those are precious to our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to take them in and do something with them. And orphanages were built. The churches built hospitals in third world nations. If you go around the world today and you find the most impoverished places in the world, who has a presence there helping those people? Usually the church. It's not the American atheists. Now that being said, Jesus Christ's mission on this earth was not a perfect society. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ's mission on this earth was not a perfect society. He did not come so that we might have a utopia. By the way, utopia, do you know what that word means? It comes from two Greek words. Ou means no, and tapos, place, no place. A utopia is a no place. And, and this is what many in the church, right now, there are churches around the country who are meeting, and the thing they're talking about this morning is about how to fix our civilization, and everybody's being lectured on what they're doing wrong, and it's easy to just be mad about a government because the government's not doing the job that Jesus gave me. You know Jesus' plan for fixing the world? It wasn't fixing a nation. It wasn't fixing a government. It wasn't putting new laws into place. Jesus' desire for fixing the world was that you would make one person at a time, one life at a time, altered, radically changed forever. You might think that fixing the American government would be a wonderful thing. America will be gone one day. Our government will be gone one day. You make one disciple, you have created something that will outlast the mountains and the sea. It will outlast earth. It goes to eternity. That's God's plan for us. Social justice can become a hamster wheel where we just congratulate ourselves and pat ourselves on the back and keep doing things. But if we have missed the main thing, then no matter how much good you do in a culture, it's not good. How about programs? Oh, a church can get so caught up in what they have to offer that they don't stop to ask, why are we doing this? Have you ever heard a church before where, where somebody says something to the effect of, well, we've always done it this way? Um, that need not be the case in the church. Our programs have to be measured, and to some degree or another, the church has to ask that question, does this make Oh, come on. A little more rousing. Does this make? It is vital. So what to do with this? Well, we frame up our life accordingly. These things I've mentioned, and many more like them, are not bad things. They're good things, so long as they contribute to making disciples. But we need to ruthlessly evaluate what we do as individuals to decide what needs to go. Some things should say, and some things should go. Um, if you look up at Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verse 1, just make a quick reference to this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. The author of Hebrews says this. He says, therefore, uh, since he's talking about running a race, okay, so he's talking about like 
our, our mission on earth as running a race. Therefore, since we have been surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us. Lay aside every encumbrance. Well, what is an encumbrance? You might be thinking, well, he means sin. No, he doesn't. He said sin separately right there. Lay aside every encumbrance and sin, which so easily entangles. So if it's not sin, what is the encumbrance? The encumbrance are things that we do that might be good, but they're not the thing. Uh, you guys ever watched a marathon be running? Be, be running? Be run? Uh, as you can tell, I don't run marathons. Uh, my wife has run a few marathons. And one of the things that amazes me about marathons are the people who show up dressed up like as a mascot. Uh, I don't know if you've ever, I saw a person dressed head to toe as a shark running a marathon. And it's pretty funny at the starting line because they're heading out and it's like, bah, ha, ha, here I go, I'm a shark running a marathon. But by the time they're about 12 miles in and that thing is, they're just like soup inside that, that costume and they're dying, you're looking at them and they're, they're probably thinking, what have I done? That is the Christian race for many of us. There are things that we're doing that might look good, but to some degree or another, maybe they don't contribute to the thing. Francis Chan has said this, and I, I love this quote. Our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of, of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at life or at things in life that don't really matter. The church should frame up what it does according to discipleship. Uh, let's talk about waiting tables. Look at Acts chapter 6, 1 through 4. Flip your Bibles open to that passage. Acts chapter 6, 1 through 4. This is early on in the life of the church. The church is thriving. It's exploding. Um, this is before mass persecution has started raining down on the church. And so the, the church is gathering and the temple, the Jewish temple, that's one of their meeting places at this point. Acts chapter 6, 1 through 4. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Is it important to take care of widows? Yes, absolutely. Was it good that the, the disciples took care of widows? I think that it was, that the apostles did. Was it good that the apostles took care of widows at the expense of the one thing? And that answer is no. If a church ever reaches the point where they say, we've got to put aside discipleship so that we can focus on, fill in the blank, that church is in the wrong. Amen? This needs to be a continual analysis that we engaged in, engage in. I want to talk uh, in closing about the right yoke. The right yoke. Uh, now, a yoke is, is not, at least in this context, it's not that yellow center of the egg. Um, when we say yoke, uh, in, in ancient times, yoke, Y-O-K-E, was the harness that you put on an ox or a mule in order to harness them to a plow or some other device in order to till or work the fields. So that being said, a yoke was a description commonly used to describe a task that someone had been put to. 
Jesus talks about a yoke, and I want to talk about the right yoke. This doesn't mean that you abandon all other tasks in this life. If you've been sitting here going, oh, well, this is heavy. I guess I've got to quit my job because disciple making is the thing. No, that's not what we're saying. This doesn't mean you abandon all other tasks. What this means is we still go to work. We still go to school. We're still allowed to have hobbies. We're still allowed to delight in some of the amazing aspects of this life that the master's given us. But now we do so with a mission. So when you go to your job, you have a mission field that is there and you think intentionally about the relationships created in that place and how you act and interact. When you go to school, you do the same. When you're engaging in your hobbies, there should be a mission element to it. You should think at least on some level, how is this part of what I'm doing for God? This isn't a burden, guys. This is freedom. This is clarity. You know that Jesus has gone. Here's one thing. It's yours. Do this. I hope that feels like freedom to you. Here's what it means. You can evaluate and even cut out some things from your schedule with no remorse. Amen? If you feel overwhelmed by the sheer volume of things to do or even good things you can do, let this be a method for sifting out these matters and taking some things and setting them aside or devaluing them a bit. I can't tell you how many times I've engaged with parents of teenagers or parents of kids who are running themselves ragged, taking kids to sporting events. And they, their kids do everything, and they're like, we just don't have time for church. You had one job. So what stays and what goes? You might be looking at your life this week, and you might decide some things are entanglements. Those are the things that are tripping us up. They're slowing us down. They're a problem. That is, they're not the main thing. So maybe they're worth a lot less of your time or concern. Maybe you forego them altogether. That's cool. But I'm hoping this happens more often than not. I'm hoping you might find new purpose in many of the things you're already doing. I'm hoping that you find the things you do in your day-to-day -day life are part of the discipleship process. Are you investing time with your kids? Yeah, but those are just kids, right? No. If you're a parent, that is your primary discipleship mission field in life right now. Are you approaching it as such? Have you had a conversation with your children about God? Can you imagine setting that aside? How much do you have to hate somebody in your household to do that? What about the intentional relationships you make? Do you know your non-Christian friends well? Do you invest in their lives even though they're annoying? They're obnoxious? Even if they, they rake on your nerves, do you love them like you love the unlovely? Because that's what the master does. I'm going to be like him. Are you investing yourself with the church? Do you have some role in the church? Every one of us is supposed to, by the way. Every person in the congregation of believers should be able to say, I'm the person who, and then you should have something you can say there. Are you spending time training your mind? Are you spending time with Jesus? Are you supporting overseas missions domestically or foreign are you conscious of how you're acting and interacting in your, in your workplace? Guys, it's our one thing. This is it. Make disciples. Jesus has given you a mission, a commission. Make disciples. How are we carrying it out? I want to close with Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Ah. This is not another burden. 
This is the laying down of burdens. This is taking up a meaningful mission that will infuse the whole of your existence with value and purpose. Jesus calls people to him in Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30. Close your eyes and just listen to this and, and feel the freedom that embracing Jesus' words here is for each of us. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, my burden upon you, and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Our Master and Lord, thank you. Thank you for bestowing on us a mission, a yoke, a task that is at hand that we must accomplish for your kingdom, for your glory. God, I pray that we would find freedom in that today. Lord, that we would reevaluate our life. Maybe, Father, that we would cut some things out. Certainly, we would begin to reassess the value of the things in the church. And, Father, we would throw ourselves into the mission of making disciples that we might stand before you on that glorious day and hear, well done, good and faithful servant.